0: Hey everyone, welcome to another ECHO podcast. I'm Michelle from CSC SoC Media Team, here with my co-host Timmy from Studex, And we're joined with our amazing guest, Hannah Birder. She won New South Wales Young Person of the Year last year and is a very accomplished computer scientist, had quite an interesting journey, and is now a technology lead at Creatable. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah. Uh, Is there anything you would like to add about who you are and what you do?
1: Thank you for having me. Um, I think that was a really awesome introduction. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I was I was actually New South Wales Young Woman of the Year. I don't want to take the um, the limelight away from the New South Wales Young Person of the Year, who is uh, Corey Tut, who is the um, head of Deadly Science, and awesome Indigenous um, science and STEM literacy uh, non for profit. But, um, yes, Young Woman of the Year over here um, still doesn't feel very real. But, uh, yeah, I work as a tech lead at Creatable. I also teach programming with Code Like a Girl and Open Learning's new CS101 course. So I'm still very much uh, got my fingers in many pies and straddling sort of two worlds of technology and tech education.
0: Nice. Okay. Um, I guess what would you say is Creatable and what do they do?
1: So, Creatable is an education technology company. Um, They had a singular mission to um, empower young women with the tools and confidence they need to change the world. That was what it was when I joined. Um, So, that involved an in-schools program teaching creative technology within the design and technology syllabus, um, at the same time as doing education project work with partners like UNICEF, um, which I'm sure we'll get into um, a bit later. But then that became a bit more of an expansive mission. We realised that, you know, underrepresentation of women in technology is but one, one uh, small example of how generally um, young people are not being adequately prepared for the future of work. So we have a new digital product that has just been launched, which is a teacher professional development product where we connect industry and teachers with Um, one another in order to get the teachers learning um, some awesome strategies and techniques that are used in the real world so that they can both employ them in their schools and their staff rooms and in their classrooms so that the students are getting a more current um, and up-to-date version of what their future might look like. And we also do some work with UNICEF. We've partnered with them to deliver an education program in the nation of Burundi in Africa. Um, promoting entrepreneurship education and STEM education so that young people feel empowered to solve local problems. So it's basically a general uh, ed tech sort of uh, house (laughs) where we do things that come to us, fun work and um, solving problems for those who uh, might not have the tools to solve them for themselves.
2: Yeah, that sounds awesome. So it seems like tech and coding isn't really taught much at high schools. Why do you think this is the case?
1: That's a really interesting question. I mean, I did see it taught in my high school, but it was so not accessible to me in any way. Like it was a very, very small subject with a very, very small class uh, full of boys. And I didn't even know like that it could be cool. So I I think that um, in terms of coding being taught in high schools, there's certainly been a lot more than there was back uh, when I was there. So I graduated in 2012, just for context. The things I see today, I'm like, oh, my God, (laughs) are you serious? This is so cool that um, students get this kind of learning. But I think that, you know, it's not taught in schools because there is still this like um, sort of mystifying aura around coding where um, you sort of have to learn coding to be able to teach coding, Um, which, you know, sounds like one plus one equals two. Right. But um, if teachers don't know how to code, then they don't know how to teach people how to code. Um, not all teachers who are in sort of IST and STD would necessarily have come from a software engineering background. Um, when you're a teacher, you have to do an education degree too. Um, so I think there might be a skills gap. I think there is also absolutely a confidence gap um, when it comes to tech educators. Um, even people who do learn computer science and software engineering don't necessarily feel comfortable to teach others. Um, when you learn something, you, you learn it to do it. Um, whereas learning something to teach it is is sort of a different hat to be wearing. Um so I do definitely see that um, showing up as an issue. And then of course, um, the way that the schools might see it is that there's no appetite for people to learn how to code. so why do we need to offer coding? Um, but I think you know you you can you, you can shift the blame onto the students, but I suppose if the students don't know um, how to want what there is, if that makes sense. so I, I think it's it's um, multifaceted problem where the blame does not lie um, with one person or party. I think it's a generally misunderstood thing, Um, but definitely it's going to be imperative for the future of work in general, for people to have um, computer literacy and technology literacy, and probably also some basic coding knowledge. Um, it, It definitely is, at least in primary schools, becoming a mandatory part of the curriculum. So it's definitely a mindset and an approach that can be embedded um, at a number of points in a number of ways without needing to have a a coding expert on, on staff.
0: In that case, do you think I, uh, like this gap will be lessened in the future? Like, what do you think teaching tech and coding will look like?
1: Um, I think teaching tech and coding is going to look like, uh, not its own discipline anymore, um, because it is such a multifaceted thing that enables you to do a lot in a variety of industries and a variety of subjects. Um, so, you know, I guess put it, put it this way, uh, just because you do art at school doesn't mean everybody becomes an artist, right? Um, you just know how to do it now and you can choose whether or not that's something you'd like to continue doing. So I think the broad scale proliferation of coding education, at least in high schools, will just result in a higher level of proficiency overall. It won't necessarily lead to um you know a more robust pipeline of students into software engineering careers or anything like that so we definitely have to um, just see it as something that is required for the future rather than something that's going to create a whole generation of future um, software engineers
2: yeah that that makes sense <clears throat> so um what does being a tech lead mean so what does that um, what does your work look like and what do you do?
1: Um, my tech lead role probably looks a little bit different to a normal tech lead role in that um, we have two sides of the business at the moment in which I'm operating as a tech lead. So there's the digital product development side, as in I'm managing the sort of um, development of our new web app. Um, but then there's also the tech lead side in terms of education. So I'll talk about the, the first one first. Um, the tech lead role uh, as it pertains to product development looks a lot like um, managing a team of developers being the go-between for um, designers and developers, setting requirements, understanding everybody's position, um, timelines, requirements, uh, choosing what technologies we might use to implement certain solutions, um, investigating how all these systems interact when it comes to things like, um, you know, marketing on top of that um, and SEO. That all sits on top of your of your software. So it's more like a, a decision-making um, role in that sense more so than being on the tools but you definitely need to have proficiency with the tools to answer the non-technical people's questions and um, sort of help them out um, with getting information they might need as well um, and then in the education space I say I'm the technology lead there too because I do produce um, education curriculums that are technologically based so I'm the one sort of researching all the emerging technologies um, creating the curriculums writing lesson plans and delivering all of that so, in an education context, I'm the tech lead. We do have people working in the education context yeah, as um, facilitators and all this. Um, but I'm definitely the one setting the technical direction, um, finding the connection between what is available and what um, high school aged girls might enjoy learning. Um, so there's a, there's a tech lead capacity in that area as well.
0: How did it feel initially like entering a more manager uh, role? Like, did you feel confident or unsure
1: Um, I think I had a bit of a soft landing because I am working at effectively a startup. Um, our team is now, uh, four full-time people, as well as a whole host of casual and contract employees that help us make the, make the dream come true. Um, but when I joined, it was just my boss and I, so I think that startups can often be a bit of an accelerator. Um, when it comes to your career, you're given a lot more trust, a lot more autonomy. Um, but you also have to, you know, deliver on that. So, um, When I became a tech lead, that looked very different to what it would be as a tech lead in a big company. I'm not managing an enormous team. Um, I do work with the devs who make our product for us, and I also manage um, some of our facilitators who deliver our workshops in schools as well. So um, when I say it was a soft landing, what I mean is – that doesn't necessarily mean there's anybody sort of beneath me in the, in the hierarchical diagram. Um, it speaks more to the sort of level of responsibility that you have, um, rather than managing others. And so, um, I felt that was like a natural progression of, um, responsibility for me as in, you know, you, you get good at doing what you do, and then you're asked to do more of it at a higher level. Um, so it was pretty comfortable. And then when you start managing others, that's where some some learning really has to come in. I think people um, don't really appreciate that you need to learn how to be a manager um, when it comes to dealing with other people. Uh, it's not something you know how to do well by default. Um, so I definitely invest a lot in ensuring that I engage with people who do report to me in a empathetic and um, meaningful way.
2: Yeah. What would you say are your biggest learnings entering a uh, more manage, manager role in being a tech lead?
1: Um, I think that it took me a while. This is probably not like, a you know, you might get some canned response type of answers to that question. But something that was very unexpected to me was that, you know, when you're used to working as an individual contributor, as an engineer, as, you know, here I am doing my job, um, and then you move into a managerial sort of role, you um, you actually are expected to use your executive capability, as in you you sort of have to stop being so cautious um, and seeking approval from all those around you before making decisions. You're actually expected to make those decisions autonomously, um, you know, use all the information available to you, whether it was a good decision or bad decision. Um, you know, you back yourself once it's happened um, and in the process of making the decision if you're at that level and you're constantly tapping people on the shoulder going, Hey, what do you think about this? Hey, what do you think about that? Um, Is this a good idea? Is this not a good idea? Then you're not really operating at that level. So I sort of had to realize that um, what got me here won't get me there. So as to speak and you sort of have to be, become comfortable with making those decisions. Um, And as you, as you sort of um, accelerate in that area, um, there's no simple answers, there's no right answers, there's no easy problems to solve. So um, that's actually, I find that quite comforting because it means that it's not like right or wrong, it's just like A or B or C or D. Um, So that was something that was a really big learning for me. You're actually expected to make these decisions rather than um, what you would be used to where you go, hey, like help me with this or like, what do you think about that? Um, those informa- those opinions and that information can be gathered through like natural meetings processes and you know, sharing that goes on. Um, you can't make a point of uh, bugging people all the time just to make sure that you feel good about your decision. You got to feel good about it yourself.
0: As you also said, um, you teach high school students, um, like I guess coding and STEM. Uh, did you ever feel intimidated by not having a
1: formal degree in education? That's a really good question. Um, It's something that I grapple with often um, because when it comes to teaching in high school um, as an educator, it depends how you're framed as to um, how you're perceived. So as in I come in, um, the school has invested in the Creatable program and I come in and I teach them stuff. The students aren't going, oh, you know, who's this chick, you know? Um, they actually like seeing somebody sort of like them, um, somebody even a bit younger who's more connected. Um, what works for me in that realm is having more recent industry experience. They're quite interested by that. They don't usually have long-term access to people who are embedded in the industry. You know, you might have a guest speaker. Um, you might have a somebody come visit your class, but to actually be taught by somebody who's closer to that sort of side is quite intriguing for students. The other thing is, Um, it pains me to say this. I've been teaching for like nearly 10 years now, Um, whether or not I have an education degree. um, There's something about, um, you know, standing in front of a classroom that no longer scares me. Um, I'm not worried about whether or not I will be able to deliver the outcomes that I'm expected to deliver. I, I feel confident in my own ability. So, um, teaching in the way that I'm doing it now I felt completely comfortable applying for the job as it was advertised which involved teaching students um, but definitely when I started teaching which was actually back during uni I would teach at my old school and then I started teaching at UNSW as a um, academic tutor as well um, that was scary to begin with because you're literally like first I was a student now I am teaching people who are like a turn behind me um, some of my students were older than me at the time. Um, some of them were postgraduate, doing an undergraduate degree. Some of them were, you know, it's it's um, definitely overwhelming, um, especially as well. I was teaching subjects I hadn't taken myself, so I was like, "Are you sure? Like, you want me to do this?" Um, I get like, I guess I can, or I felt like I might not be able to, um, but then I was like, "I guess I can." Um, so, all that sort of confidence that you're speaking about, as in. Do I feel intimidated? Not anymore. Um, I think experience speaks for itself. Yeah. Um, and those feelings that you would get as a first-time tutor are very much dissipated. I don't, you know, I don't walk in and go, can I teach this lesson? Um, I walk in and I go, can I connect with these people? Um, and so that's, that's sort of where it's at now. Um, depending on who you're teaching, you have to take different approaches. Um, I do teach adults as well as, you know, outside of Creatable, I, I teach adults how to code. It's very different um, when people self-select as in, I am coming to this thing on purpose. I've paid for this course or um, I've chosen this subject. Sometimes uh, the students I teach, they'll have selected design and technology and then go, oh, why are we coding? Like, why are we, why are we doing robotics? What's, what's e-textiles? I don't understand, like, this is not what I expected. Um, and that that's where there's more sort of opportunity for growth because you can sort of surprise and delight them, but not all, not all, um, classes are created equal in terms of their desire to be um, learning from you or learning what you're teaching them so yeah
2: for sure and I feel like um so like coding and um stem isn't is pretty relatively new um in teaching for high school students so as someone who's like tackling this um do you often feel like you're on your own um trying to figure this all out or and like um, do you feel like you're constantly having to figure things out for yourself?
1: Um, I think that there is quite a robust industry, especially of um, women in STEM who are trying to engage young women in STEM. Um, that's, that's a community I feel really um, appreciative to have sort of found, um, be involved with and cultivated around me. Um, but when it comes to like the content itself, um, you have to differentiate from, even even if there is stuff that is out there, like that doesn't mean that it's good. It doesn't mean it's going to land. It doesn't mean they're going to care. Um, so I definitely do figure stuff out for myself when it comes to like creating interesting um, courses for them. Um, and I guess in the high school setting, you know, you, you actually just want to sort of surprise them and go, make them go, oh, I didn't realise that, um, you know, this thing that I'm good at, let's say music, um, could be related to this new thing I'm learning, for example, coding. Um, so you can you can sort of piggyback off things that they're already good at um, to make them have a confidence boost in this new thing that they're learning. Um, but if you're just going in there and teaching the same old thing, um, <laughs> they'll tell you if they've learned it before. They're like, oh, we did this last term, or oh yeah. We sort of did some of that with this. Um, they, they know what they've done. So you really do have to be creative in um, finding some things that will be relevant but also be interesting.
0: Um, I guess at Creatable, do you think uh, you guys are filling in a gap left out by the education system?
1: Um, that's a really tough question to answer. I think that, yes, there are gaps in the education system, but it's not, it's not anyone's fault, I think the rate of change in industry, it, it, it is challenging to reflect that in educational institutions. And I'm sure that you may have even experienced that at university. Um, there are like regulatory requirements that surround that. Um, you know, Unis can only update their syllabuses every five years. For example, they go through a full on new re-accreditation process. Um, teachers plan a lot um, in advance of the following year so they might have seen something cool. They can only teach it next year now because they've already got their units set for this year. Um, things go out of date really quickly. Things move really quickly. And, um, you know, you might while you might have this idea that teachers are constantly creating new curriculums to teach you in your classroom, um, that's just, I mean, it's not the case, right? And you, you might use new ways to teach the same thing. Um, you might sort of frame something old in a new way. But when it comes to technology, as I'm sure you know, it's incredibly challenging to keep up even as somebody who's embedded in that industry. So um, imagine wrapping all of that in like formal requirements um, for education, in um, professional development requirements for yourself within time constraints of a year, within um, resource constraints of your school, um, within your own sort of ability to learn and understand something so there's a lot that goes into that so yes I do think that we are filling a gap but that's just because like our business is in gap filling whereas schools have a whole host of other things that they need to do at the same time
2: yeah that makes a lot of sense um so it sounds like you really double your, um, do like a lot of different things in your life so work life balance does it exist
1: yeah it does um I think I guess I should start by saying I've always had a number of jobs like I've I started working as early as you can in Australia like I came up in, in pharmacies um if you're looking for a good job as a young person by the way pharmacies are amazing they pay award wage and um they have to train you in things. So I got a good, let's call it work education early on, um, which helped me sort of learn good time management skills by the time I sat my HSE and entered uni and all this. So um, I'm no stranger to having many um, plates spinning in the air at the same time. Um, when it comes to work-life balance, I definitely, you know, we're all striving to optimise for sort of maximum um relaxation and downtime and regenerating time and like exercise and seeing friends and um I think I do benefit from being a um like a a social person um I don't know whether I'd call myself an introvert or an extrovert I thought I'd struggle with the lockdown a lot more than I did for example <laughs> I'm actually pretty pretty alright like just staying at home I'm like oh yeah that's cool um i i didn't carve out that much time or space for myself beforehand let's put it that way um so i guess it just becomes a case of like what are your what are your goals and that's professional and personal um are you just taking on an opportunity because somebody threw it your way and you think you should um or do you think you can actually make a really big difference here what is the time commitment going to look like Um, and I started thinking about, I think about this in a number of different arenas, but I guess when it comes to time, it's your most valuable asset. So if I get approached with an opportunity, um, I go, would I rather have, would I rather do this or have that hour to myself? You know? So I I started doing this with online shopping, actually, you go, do I want this jumper or do I want my own $60, you know? (laughs) So now I'm like, do I want this? Or do I want to actually have that time um, for myself? And I think that if you have a clear sense of what you're trying to achieve in your personal and professional life, it makes it easier to sort of put these things through a little decision tree and and back yourself, whether you say yes or no, you know why. Um, So that's definitely been my approach so far. Um, I definitely enjoy seeing friends. I've got a really close relationship with my family. Um, you know, I like to get out for a walk once a day now, um but I definitely exercise you know regularly before as well. I play um social sport there's there's a lot going on um but i don't um i I don't claim to have it down pat just yet
0: uh I guess has there ever been a moment where you think you work too much like where working multiple jobs has been straining in a way? <laughs>
1: when other people ask me if it is (laughs) um I remember there was one summer um when I had been accepted for an internship overseas and I had requested that I could push it back six months um so that I could there were a few things going on but it it would benefit me to have done it in six months time because I had finished my undergraduate degree and I was waiting to start my honours the following year and so during that summer when I was um you know, expecting to go and work, um, I went and got a job in a chocolate shop and my, my dad was like, what are you doing? Like literally why? And I was like, I I see it as, um, you know, I have this whole summer ahead of me. I, I don't deal well without a routine Um, I like to have something to do. I've always thought that if you're working, you're not out spending your money, especially over the summer. Um, I was used to income during the semester time um, because of tutoring. And then that was all going to disappear. And if I had more time and less income, that meant more money on brunches and coffees and going out. Um, So I just I was like, yeah, why not? Um, And it turned into a really great experience socially, as well as from a work perspective. I think. Um, if you can see opportunities holistically, then um, you can definitely get more out of them. And, you know, as I said, why you're taking them on. I was taking on this opportunity because, first of all, I had expected to work. So now I had some whiplash about not working. Oh, am I actually going to sit around and do nothing? Also, it was a nice way to spend my time. I got to meet new people. I got to go back into customer service and um you know, get in touch with that sort of side again, Um, hone my communication skills, learn about a different business. Um, There was a lot going on. So whereas from the outside, it just looks like you're going on and taking another job. So there's that. Um, I guess another time where it might have seemed like I'm working too much was um, I, during my graduate job, I had continued teaching at UNSW with my thesis supervisor. Um, And I was teaching the postgraduate human computer interaction course after hours. So once a week, I would go straight from work to UNSW to teach a two hour lab for postgrad students. Um, And it turned into a really long day. Not that it was a problem, not that work had any issue with it either. It just turned one day a week into a really long day. And sometimes you only realize afterwards that you're tired, like day to day, it was fine. But then when the course ended and I had that night back, I was like, ah, oh, right, okay, yep, that's what it felt like. So I definitely make sure to sort of have a vision for what the future will look like, even if it feels like two hours a week. Um, what does it actually mean for the shape of your week? Or what does it mean for your energy levels over time and, and that kind of thing? So that was that was probably another time um, where I experienced that.
2: Yeah, it's definitely, work-life balance definitely seems like a pretty difficult thing to figure out. Um yeah, branching on to something else you've been pretty involved in. Um, so th- so for the Girls Programming Network and Code Like a Girl, um, you've been in- involved with these organisations for a while now. Do you think the industry has um, changed much for women since you've joined?
1: I'd love to say yes. You know, I'd really love to say that it's changed a lot. Um. I don't know that the industry has changed much. I know that the women who enter it have changed a lot, if that makes sense. So the the level of um, confidence, the level of connectedness, um, and the sort of way in which women now approach the industry, I think that has changed. Um, I remember meeting some young girls through the Girls Programming Network, um, who are actually now students at UNSW, and they had all come up through NCSS and, um, other sort of initiatives like girls programming network, et cetera. So I was meeting them just before they were starting uni and they already had this little girl gang who knew how to code coming into computer science there. They were like, they're, they're, they're set. And I was just like, Oh my God. Like when I came here, I didn't know any women. I did not know how to code. I did not have any sense of what work looked like. I didn't know anything. And they're just walking in like full squad formation. At least that's how I picture it anyway. Um, having having female friends who know how to code and a confidence that you're where you're meant to be um that's definitely not something that I necessarily um perceived or experienced when I was starting out on my journey so um you know i don't wanna i don't wanna speak for an entire industry I think but the people who enter it now the women who enter it now have a lot of um a lot more in terms of um you know Internally, they approach it from a very different perspective. Um, Industry, you know, it claims to care more. Um, There is a lot of investment in programs like um, Girls Programming Network and um, Code Like a Girl. I think a lot of companies, um, you know, you can't argue with the research. More diverse teams lead to better financial outcomes. Um, More diverse teams lead to better team culture, higher retention rates, all of this. Um, I guess I'm a bit of a skeptic because that's what companies say when they talk about why they invest in this stuff. And I'm like, what if it didn't, you know what I mean? What if it didn't lead to better outcomes? Would you still hire more women? Like I I just, there's a fundamental sort of equality piece that still feels like it's missing for me. Um, industry has a certain language that they use to talk about these things and they all understand each other. But when you scratch the surface, Um, there, there can sometimes be, it can be more hollow than, than you expect. Let's put it that way.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Um, what do you think about companies having a quota for women and underrepresented groups in general? I guess, uh, does it have a positive impact for those groups?
1: Yeah, it absolutely has a positive impact for those groups. I think that then like as in that's not that's a fact. That's not like an opinion there. It it definitely has a positive effect. Um, However, I think that the negative effects that do come from that are mostly social and that is still something that companies are grappling with how to overcome. Uh, What I mean by that is if the perception of quotas is not well understood, um, if if the perception of quotas is that you're taking jobs that would have otherwise gone to X Y and Z people, um, you get you get you build a culture where people resent those who actually are there. Um, you get a culture where um, people think that you are only selected for that reason. Um, you get a culture where people think that because you came in through that avenue, you're not as good as having come through the regular avenue. You know, um, and then you know at scale. You might see that people start assuming that all women are junior for example or all women came through a diversity program so i think there's still some stigma and still some um you know understanding to be developed around that um the the idea itself is not a problem the idea itself is one small way um to work against what has become historically and structurally entrenched in these um, institutions. So they're like, yeah, we know that actually our normal process doesn't result in what we're looking for. So here is now a subversive measure to help us get there. Um, But then there are unintended side effects and unintended consequences that do um, fall back onto the people who are involved with those programs. So I don't think it's a bad thing, but I, yeah, but it's a complicated thing.
2: For sure, for sure. Yeah. So, um, you've done like a lot of teaching over your, um, career. So, what sort of, um, what do you enjoy about teaching, and what led you to enter more a more um edutech side rather than um the other, um aspects or other sides of tech?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I enjoy teaching because I think it's really fantastic to watch people, um on their own journey of discovery. So um, your experience as a learner is really important if you become an educator. And I think if you can sort of reflect that in your teaching, um, then you can provide people with the, whatever's stopping them from crossing that bridge, you can sort of give it to them, Um, whether that's confidence or um, an understanding or, you know, perception of whether or not they're meant to be where they are. it's really amazing to see somebody go from I know none of these things to I am proficient and an expert in these things that I did not know 10 weeks ago or I did not know a semester or a trimester ago. Um, being a part of that, it, it feels really energising. Um, and I think, you know, you. if I said to you, who's your favourite teacher? Like you've got someone that comes to your mind, I'm sure, um, because good teachers make a difference um and they make a difference because of how they make you feel they don't necessarily make a difference because of what you learned from them there's a you know if I said what's your favorite subject you wouldn't necessarily say this is my favorite subject because the teacher was so good you like what you like because you like it but I think teachers can make you like things that you didn't know you'd like um, because of how they approach you so um that's really enjoyable to me, um, especially in computer science, um, sometimes you know you know who is the expert. If, I, if, if you were in a room and um, I said point, point to the person who is best at this subject, you'd all point to the same person. Um, and they probably point to themselves, right. Um, when somebody's good at something, amazing. like well done. Um, but teaching is a whole different skill set they wouldn't necessarily be able to impart that knowledge on somebody else. So from a, a um, I guess, a bit of a selfish perspective, um, teaching others really helps you interrogate how well you understand something too. So, you know, I might not get the best grades and I absolutely did not <laughs> at uni get the best grades. Um, but I think that my my understanding of concepts would actually um, stand the test of time because if you have to tell somebody else Um, If you have to teach somebody else, that means you actually have to re-engage with the process of learning it from scratch. Um, How does somebody who's never heard of this concept before become knowledgeable about it? You can't just say X, Y, Z, and they go, oh, yeah, because if it was that easy, everyone would know everything. Um, So I find that really fun. And I forgot the second part of your question. So I might ask you to ask me again.
2: Um... Oh yeah, the second part was mainly, um, what led you to continue your teaching into um, EdTech?
1: Gotcha, yes, that's a good question. Um, So when I was working as a software engineer, and I'm sure this is an experience I had in uni as well, um, as in industry, I just don't care about the technical stuff for the sake of it being technical. Like... It's fun to learn a language. It's fun to make things. It's fun to have an impact based on the things that you've created. But coding for the sake of coding does not interest me. And it took me so long to actually sort of admit that. I just don't care. Um, I just really don't. And that shows when you are working next to people who have the same job title as you, who care a lot about that. Right. So, and and it can be the specifics of the language. It can be the craft. Um, it can be testing. It can be whatever it is that really floats your boat because it itself interests you. And you know, my sort of expertise was in front end development. Yeah. I found it fun. Um, and yes, it was cool. And it made my brain feel nice to make things go in the right place and have them work when you click them. Um, but beyond that, I definitely didn't find a purpose in what I was doing. And so when you are working alongside other people who do find that joy and do have that passion for those things specifically, those things technically, um, you know, you come to this realization that you're not going to stay up all night to do it and somebody else will because of passion, not because of motivation or discipline, um, but because they care. And so when I realized that what I did care about was teaching, you have to do it. You know, you, you have to do the thing that is going to keep you up all night because you love it so much. Um, because otherwise you will, um, burn out. Otherwise you will feel that you're not progressing as, as smoothly or as swiftly as those around you. Um, you might reach the limits of your ability to, um, achieve in that sort of narrow, um, lane because there is an upper limit to how, amazing. You can be at (laughs) vanilla JavaScript. You know what I mean? So you, you, you do reach a ceiling, um, if you are sort of a narrow, um, specialist. And so I realized that first of all, I have to do the thing I care about because if I care about it the most, then that's going to carry me. And I have to not do something I don't care about, especially at a big company, um, or even a small company people where people are passionate about the craft Um, and you're not passionate about the craft, you can be passionate about the mission that will carry you. You can be passionate about the people that you work with that will carry you. Um, But at the end of the day, what you're spending your time doing um, in a workplace, eight hours a day, five days a week, until you're 65 or older, like if you don't care, you're going to hit a wall. And so I actually had to sort of accept it, even though it felt really scary, because nobody else was doing it. Nobody else was sort of taking that leap. I think um, now I see colleagues and friends and peers from uni um, taking sort of a left turn or um, changing what it is that they're doing, moving into an adjacent area, using their tech skills to sort of um, create awesome products or grow amazing teams, things like this. Um, But certainly I feel like I was doing it really early um, and when I was doing it, I didn't see anybody else doing it, so it was really scary to sort of take that on um, because you when you when you walk away from the well- beaten path, even if you know what's on it is not well suited for you um, the unknown is always scarier than the known in a way
0: oh, what are some of the challenges that
1: come with teaching um, <laughs> well i I get the benefit right now I will say of coming in, teaching the lesson and leaving. Um, so all of the auxiliary stuff that makes teaching challenging, like, um, you know, assessments and dealing with parents and sort of fitting it in around your work schedule and all of this, that's not something that I engage with. So there are challenges of teaching that I do not brush up against. I'll start by saying it that way. Um, other challenges of teaching, like how, how do you maintain the um, – the audience, how do, you, how do you retain the audience? How do you keep um, the pace? How do you sort of, um, I guess you've seen it if you've ever watched comedy shows or been to a comedy show, um, you, the, the person on stage has your attention and they're taking you on a journey. Um, and there are lulls and there are highs wow. and there are moments for relief and there's moments to react and there's moments to just listen. Um, You sort of have to take that same approach with a class. Um, And so if you don't know how to do that, that can be really scary because you get to the end of the lesson and you're like, I said what I needed to say, but I don't know if they internalised what I said. Um, One of my colleagues has said to me, well, has said recently, and I've taken it on, um, you don't measure um, education by whether or not the person taught the content. You measure the education by whether the students can achieve the outcomes and autonomously um, undertake the tasks and all of this. So it's really not about me saying what I need to say. It's actually more about connecting with the audience. And so that can be a big challenge. Um, Every audience is different. Every classroom is different. Um, Every group is different. And so you need to really understand who you're teaching, what their context is, Um, what their expectations are and know how to connect with them because otherwise just saying what you need to say, uh, isn't going to work.
2: Yeah. It sounds like you've, your experience of teaching has been um, really enjoyable. Has there ever ever been like a point where you thought about quitting teaching or like questioning if, um, that's sort of what you, uh, enjoyed a, a lot of?
1: Um, I don't think that I've ever considered quitting, because I have kept it to a reasonable level so I don't spend my full work week in front of a classroom trying to teach some stuff um I know that teaching you know you look at actual teachers and there's the stats there around the retention um many 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 teachers leave within the first five years of their sort of experience there um just because it's a completely exhausting profession that requires you to wear so many hats and you know, sort of um, traverse many different sort of expectations and stakeholders. We don't really perceive teachers in that way, but um, it's a really tiring thing to do. It zaps all your energy. And um, so I haven't considered leaving because I don't think I have um, been so immersed in it that it is it, sapping me of my livelihood. So um, I make sure that I keep it at a level that is sustainable, which is a you know benefit that I have. Um, classroom teachers, that's their job. So they got to do what they have to do. Um, but no, I actually have not considered not teaching.
0: Uh, yeah, we've seen that uh, you are an academic tutor and lab demonstrator in UNSW. Um I guess out of these out of sorry which courses uh did you enjoy teaching the most
1: out of all the ones that you've taught Um the two main ones that I like teaching the most were human computer interaction and um computing for engineers for different reasons um computing for engineers I've touched on a bit before the people that come in there really are just ticking the box um, as in not, not saying that they're like low energy or lethargic or anything, but there is a box to tick when it comes to computing in engineering degrees, some engineering degrees require that you do a higher level of computing than this subject. Um, so this is a combination of, you know, some material science students, um, mining engineers, civil engineers, renewable energy engineers, um, mech, mechatronics and electrical engineers did tend to do the higher level of engineering. Uh, Sorry, of computing. So I love teaching engineering um, computing because there was so much room for improvement in terms of um, perception of computing within within the discipline. So, you know, they'd come in at best knowing nothing and at worst thinking that they're so bad at it and that it's terrible and hating it. And so when when the floor is that low, <laughs> the ceiling looks a lot higher and you can really take people on this journey and change their perception of um, their abilities and change their perception of computing and how it fits in with what they do. So that's, that's why I really like teaching that one. Um, human-computer interaction, I like teaching because it was sort of my specialization when I was at uni. And I also like teaching it because uh, it got a bit of a bad reputation, I suppose, from computer science purists who thought that it had no coding, so you're having a bludge. Um, But really, if you have any interest at all in um, UX design, if you have any interest at all in working in a product team, it's imperative that you understand the things that are taught in human-computer interaction um, because it gives you a – it's like one of the only subjects I would say that actually has super industry-relevant – Um, content that is taught in an industry-relevant way. Other courses have industry-relevant content, but you sort of have to put two and two together to see where it fits. HCI will stay with you forever. I still use those tools and techniques that I learned and that I taught there. Um, And I also liked making people um, see that it is a meaningful discipline of, um, of computer science. On top of that, I think that when you, you know, see a bad interface, let's say, you're just like, oh, that's so bad. And then you're. I'm like, why? And you're like, it just is, right? So this this course teaches you the languages, teaches you the conventions, teaches you the terminology to use to actually um, provide constructive feedback. So I liked it as a bit of an antidote to like, you know, there's no coding, it can't be real. I'm like, okay, well, you're going to go and get a job, so you're going to need to know these things. And I also liked it as an antidote to just like, I'm... Um, unbridled negativity i'm like don't tell me something's bad without telling me why or how you could improve it you know i, I much more um, appreciate and respect generative sort of engagement with things rather than um just negative commentary so to to give people a shared language to um communicate around these things was really important as well so in,
2: in throughout uni i feel like there's a lot of um opportunities to get um stuff out of Get, there's a lot of opportunities to get a lot out of uni beyond just the degree and what you learn. So for you, how did uh, UNSW tutoring help you beyond um, uni and into your career?
1: Um, well, without it, I wouldn't have had a basis for any of the work that I did beyond uni in the education sector. I think it's a really, like, looking back on it now, I'm like, that that is bizarre, you know, that we actually get offered these opportunities um, in other uh, faculties, you know, you, you can't just teach a subject, right? As an undergraduate, you need to have like well-formulated um, and credentialed opinions about things. You you need to have a postgraduate degree. You need to have a PhD. You need to have some published papers. You need to have some industry experience. Um, in computer science I know I said it before just because you know something doesn't mean you can teach it but it's certainly closer to that than some other faculties like you know law for example or, or arts um, when you know something you you definitely um, because it's it's more discreet than um, you know conceptual learning it is it is a possibility that undergraduates can can then go and teach it um, so it in, in terms of, like, job prospects, I, I, all my experience um, that was not voluntary uh, in the teaching space was at UNSW prior to graduation. It also, um, you know, gives you that basis for expectations when it comes to, like, what your work is worth in that realm to be paid for it. So, you know, you have sort of experience getting paid to do this job um, if you're looking at taking on roles outside of uni when you're finished in that sort of realm you have a sense for what the market is like Um, you have a sense for what it requires beyond just the face time in the classroom Um, so it gives you a better understanding of what that role might look like if you decide to take it on and then from a skills perspective like so much of my communication and empathy and design work now is um, built on that um, face time that you spend with the students, the interfacing with people, and the communicating with them, tra- translating concepts and um, helping people learn and understand things. That is like, if you're if you're like, what's your superpower? <laughs> you know, um, that that is my one my one skill that I would say sets me apart in the industry is that um, really empathetic understanding and communication, which forms a basis of a lot of design, and so it's put me in good stead. I guess I'm trying to avoid using the word soft skills because I think it actually is hard skills in the context of education and design to communicate and to teach. Um, I don't want to sort of belittle them inadvertently with the connotations of the term soft skills. So um, there's a lot of that. And beyond that, networking. Some of my students uh, became teachers themselves Some of my students, as I said, were older than me, my age, et cetera, are friends of mine now. And it's now no longer relevant that six years ago I taught them, you know, HCI. Um, You come across them again in industry. All the people you're at uni with now, you will be around in industry forever, um, whether that's in Sydney or overseas. So to have built a longer term relationship with them um, in the form of um, teaching is really beneficial. You're exposed to more people, you meet more people, Um, you interact with more people and then their perception of you is shaped by your teaching ability as well. So now I feel like um, that's me putting my best foot forward is teaching. And so if somebody gets to know me in that context, I'm like, wow, that's really great because (laughs) if you met me like, I don't know, out and about, maybe I wouldn't come across in the way that I did. Um, So yeah, that's a benefit as well.
0: Uh, I guess in terms of advice, um, do you have a life motto that you usually find yourself repeating uh, to yourself or even to other
1: students? Um, I think that, so I don't have like a life motto myself. I definitely have sort of ways of ways of operating that guide me, but not like a phrase or anything like this. Um, But things that I find myself saying to my students um, is you don't have to like this, um, which I think when it comes to being a woman in STEM, um, you've you've asked me a few questions where you're like, hey, you've done all this and you've done all that. Um, and the unspoken thing is that that's like on top of everything else, you know, on top of working as a software engineer, you also X, Y, Z. Um, there's an expectation, I think, especially around women to um, do their job and then also be an advocate for others um, and invest in young people and teach people what you know, um, beyond what is expected of um, a dude, to be honest. Um, I would often say to my colleagues, you just get to go to work and do your job. (laughs) So um, I've definitely been frustrated by the expectations on Um, myself and other women in the workplace to sort of extend ourselves beyond just sitting and being an excellent employee, um, doing an excellent job. And so it's nice to remind yourself that you actually don't have to like everything that you do. Sometimes, especially the sort of hustle culture that is quite prominent these days, um, everybody looks like they're having a fabulous time doing everything they're doing. And, And sometimes it's just fine to be like, I have to do it and it sucked like, or I, I don't like it, but it is something I committed to, or, um, you know, this doesn't have to have a bigger impact on my life. I'm allowed to just do something cause it's fun or I'm allowed to um make choices cause I feel like it um, not because it has some bigger impact, some future impact or some area I'm investing in myself. So um, if you can just relieve yourself of the expectation to like everything that you do, Um, then it can be quite freeing because what we're seeing is other people like posting their success, um, highlighting their experiences. But if you actually had a chat with them, um, I'm sure there were good parts and bad parts. And so I think when we're going through life, um, it's okay to have sort of peaks and troughs and um, to not put that expectation on yourself beyond the expectations of others on you. Um, to, to like what you're doing at all times.
2: Yeah. And um, do you feel like there was ever a decision that you felt like you regretted or like a lesson you felt that you should have learned earlier? Or do you feel like everything was sort of um, something you had to go through and figure out and learn from?
1: Um, the way you said it at the end, like I think it's really poignant when you do understand that um, if you like where you are now, you have to respect the journey, um, but also if you like where you are now, you, it's, it's fine to admit that you'd like to have been here earlier than you are. Um, so, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that there's only one way to get somewhere. Um, in terms of what I perceive in my life in that way, um, the things that really knocked me down um, in terms of job rejections Um, felt incredibly personal um, when I would not get accepted for a job or or got a negative um, response when I was looking. And this was at the end of uni. I'm looking for my role for next year. Um, It feels really personal. And especially when you've just finished, you've got this sort of juxtaposition of um, I've just finished three, four, five years of study. I have never been smarter. (laughs) I've never been more prepared to go and do what I need to do now. Um, But no one wants me. And so then you're like, is it me? What have I done wrong? I've just finished a degree, surely, like, this is all I needed to do. Um, So I think, obviously, learning from rejection is so important. And that is exactly what I did. But you know, when you get your first offer, for example, you feel like you have to take it because you're like, I'm never going to get another job offer ever again. Um, I think that's not true. I wish I knew that. Um, I wish that I had a better sense of um, where I wanted to go. Um, I do think I always knew that I liked teaching enough to pursue it full time. But there was a part of me that was like, you have to go and prove that you can code. (laughs) You have to go and prove that you can work as a software engineer before people will take you seriously. Um, You know, The whole, the old adage of those who can do and those who can't teach really was just playing on my mind. Um, And the question you asked earlier about further education, getting an education degree, I'm sort of thinking, do I have enough to go and do this, you know? So um, I think that those doubts that were in my mind, um, you become comfortable with them over time and sort of sift through them slowly There's nothing bad about spending your time at a reputable company that was happy to have you while you figure out what you want to do. Um, So I think there's always a lot of competing um, expectations and competing sort of desires within you. Um, So if you know that you're in this sort of in conflict with yourself, like I know what I want to do, but I don't feel like I can do it yet. That's okay. And I, I just wish I was more okay with it while I was in that period, cause I think I spent that period, um, you know, figuring out how to get from A to B. And um, as I said, you know, going from work to teaching after work, I'm like, why, why? And now I see it was because I was, I was coming to terms with the fact that that's what I wanted to do. So um, yeah, now I'm like, respect the process. Instead of being mad that I didn't have more time to myself, um, I'm like, oh, okay. That's sort of what got me here. So, yeah, it's it's definitely you can hold two competing thoughts in your mind at once. I respect what got me here and also I wish it didn't have to take so long or um, all of that kind of thing.
0: I guess now that you're here, I guess where do you see yourself in the future? Is what you're doing
1: now kind of the end goal already? Um, I think <laughs> I get <laughs> bored Uh easily and I think that's also why I have a lot on the go at one time. Um, What the future holds for me, I really hope to have a bigger impact through like strategy and advisory rather than having to um, continue teaching forever. Um, Not to say that I want to quit but as in um, I think when you when you reach a certain point in your career you go (laughs) how can I do, how can I do more by doing less, if that makes sense? So I think I can still have the impact that I'm having um, while scaling back, I guess, the FaceTime, as I call it. It's fun for me to do, so that's I want that to be the only reason that I do it, if that makes sense. Not because I can't achieve the same outcomes through a different process. We definitely saw that at Creatable, a great case in point. Um, we had a partnership with UNICEF for this um, Burundi project And we were meant to go to Africa to actually teach um, the teachers, the curriculum that we had developed, and then the teachers would go and and, um, implement it in their curriculum. But because of COVID that did not happen, we didn't go. Mm, What we learned was that um, teachers don't, teachers are the activators of the students, right? And we could actually deliver that program fully remotely, fully online, And that sort of exemplifies my understanding that um, I don't have to be the one at the front of the classroom saying the words so that these students learn that thing. I would love to teach other people how to teach well so that there is impact at scale. Um, I would love to empower teachers to do it themselves because they already have everything else that they need to do that. Um, I'd love to help um, you know companies and products and um, you know education sort of curriculums be guided from this perspective of um, like communal and empathetic learning that I have internalized as well so I think I can have I, I guess I'm not so full of myself so as to say that I need to do it myself um I want to I want like with the teaching, I want the outcome, not the, um, input. So I think that I can do that at, in, in a different way. And that's where I'm sort of heading now.
2: Yeah. I feel like it's always hard to figure out like what, um, you have planned for the future, but, um, just for our final sort of section, um, I feel like you've been a pretty vocal and like, um, a public role model to a lot of people and, um, talk to people a lot whether it be interviews or podcasts and such um I just like to provide a bit of an open floor if there's any particular topics um that you feel like aren't really talked about or do you feel like everything um you sort of said everything that you've wanted
1: um that's really kind of you (laughs) thanks for saying that sometimes you don't uh you don't get the direct feedback and and that's that's what I'm becoming more comfortable with now um in front of a classroom you know if you've got them or not Uh, and at scale, you're like, if somebody tells me that what you gave them was helpful, then you know, but sometimes the world just happens around you and you don't get that feedback. So it's, it's humbling to hear that. Thank you. Um, as for, as for topics, I think we've really covered a lot. I just want to say, I really appreciate, um, the two of you for the questions that you've crafted because, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, women in STEM, they're like, asked a lot about what it's like to be a woman in STEM, um, instead of asking like, what do you do and what are you good at and how did you learn that and what's next, you know? Um, so I appreciate that you focused in on, um, the things that I feel that I can, um, help others with and, and in part as my sort of expertise and speciality, um, beyond just (laughs) being a girl. So, um, that that's not always the case and so i just wanted to say i appreciate that
2: yeah th- thank you Nah, no, for sure thank you uh, so much for joining us um for those who, you, who are listening make sure to check out our other podcasts and comment and the content on the media website also don't forget to leave a like comment and subscribe and hope to see you guys in the next podcast bye